Today, we are going to start with a conversation with Rodrigo Bayer from Redpoint eVentures in Brazil. Rodrigo, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, let's uh, get acquainted and introduce you to our audience. Tell us a bit about your background and uh, also about the Redpoint eVentures initiative in Brazil. Sure. Uh, well, uh, I, I started my career as a founder uh, within a large corporation. We set up a, a different business unit. That doesn't really work. So we, we wind it down and we spun it off to the company. Uh, they took over after, uh, after that. I spent a long while doing consulting, um, figured that I loved uh, to give people advice on their business. Not, not as much being changing the clients all the time and not following up with their growth. So I thought venture uh, actually made a lot of sense. Joining the advice and the support uh, role of uh, a consultant uh, with uh, my entrepreneurial background and then uh, adding on top of that, being able to follow up and see uh, the effects of uh, what we're building together. Uh, so I went to the States uh, to do my MBA. Uh, did a venture over there and then decided to come back to Brazil in 2007 and basically there was no industry. So um, I went back to consulting for a few years, spent uh, four years at McKinsey. In parallel, we set up a venture fund with friends, did a bunch of investments, uh, had to run one of those, uh, one of my first initial mistakes, uh, investing on a founder that wasn't fully committed, uh, sold that business. Uh, and then uh, went back to McKinsey while we raised our, our second fund, which was a very small fund. Uh, we did six investments out of that fund, and one uh, went on to become a $4 billion business. Uh, so uh, we had a very good history to tell, but the partners had different visions on what they wanted to do. Uh, one wanted to do corporate venture, the other one wanted to do late-stage investing, and I wanted to stay in the United States, so I left. I uh, spent about a year working on raising a new fund and talking to a bunch of people in that process. Uh, I came to talk to one of the managing partners at Redpoint, uh, and, and it was a fun conversation. So it's just like, so what do you want to have in your fund? And it's like, I made this long list, and they were like, yeah, I can check all those boxes, and I have a, a fund already raised they want to join, and I've been here for six years. Uh, it's been an awesome ride. Uh, I came in about a year after the fund was raised. Uh, over the past six years, we invested uh, our first fund, which was $130 million into 35 companies. Uh, we have two unicorns out of that, probably a few more uh, on the making. Um, and then uh, we just uh, raised our second fund, which is uh, a little over our target of 175. Uh, we have already made 12 investments uh, out of the, uh, that fund. Uh, hopefully, it will perform as well as the first one. Uh, we, we like the founders we're backing, but uh, the only time will tell, right? And in parallel, uh, uh, when we, Anderson, uh, who is our managing partner here, took on the role um, to create uh, Redpoint Ventures in Brazil, he was asked by the founders of Redpoint Ventures not only to help create the leading uh, venture capital firm in Brazil, but also create a healthy ecosystem, right? There's no point on being the largest or the best fund in a non-existent market. 
So this is something that we all bring uh, in the firm, uh, the idea that we have to help build the ecosystem. Uh, and in that uh, sense, we actually went on and built something fairly large. Uh, we joined forces with Brazil's largest bank and created, uh, it's a weird concept, it's a uh, co-working space matched up with a lot of commercial development and these bad for startups which is uh, today the second largest hub for startups in the world. Uh, we have 127 residents on the building, uh, mm -hmm. which hosts 1,600 people. Uh, we do 40,000 people a month in events. And then uh, we have another 400 companies that are connected through us through our digital platforms. So that, that's a little bit of Google. Yeah, this is all happening in Sao Paulo. So you are based out of Sao Paulo at this point? Yes, we are. Uh, so, th that's the big economic hub in Brazil, right? So yeah. we're here. Let's talk a bit uh, more in detail about the Redpoint eVentures platform. Um, sure. So firstly, all investments are happening in Brazil, correct? Or is it all of Latin America? Uh, we have a Latin American mandate. Okay. Uh, we've done one investment in, uh, outside of Brazil in, for, in the first fund, uh, and we were very lucky because we did the seed investment in RAPI, which is now a $3.5, $3.6 billion business. Uh, we are going to be more proactive now uh, on the second fund. Uh, so I'm the one actually in charge of going out and scouting other Latin American markets. Mm -hmm. But uh, we're still learning the ropes. Uh, Brazil, we understand very well. Uh, we have the connections to support uh, Latin America. We still have to figure that out. Okay. And um, in terms of stage, you said your fund is about $175 million. Uh, What is your stage preference? We were designed to be a Series A fund, right? Uh, and that's, that's our bread and butter. Uh, but we take the liberty of doing seeds and series Bs. So we've done checks anyway from a starting checks, right? So from $35,000 to $8 million. Uh, but where we're normally comfortable is products with a product market fit, companies with product market fit that actually uh, need money to accelerate where we'll put in $1 to $5 million on a series A. And... Um... Do you have enough of an ecosystem in Brazil at this point that can do the earlier stage since you're designed to be a Series A fund, even though you're doing some amount of seed work, I presume that you need a, a feeder set of feeder funds in the ecosystem from which to draw from. So what is, this, what is the current status of your ecosystem? Well, we have... Uh... We have a lot of angels uh, that are normally not very tech savvy. There are normally rich people that are writing checks, uh, and but that's capital flow that uh, founders can access, right? Uh, we have a few uh, seed stage funds uh, that provide a decent uh, pipeline, uh, and uh, but we don't see scarcity actually. Uh, and what we've seen is now uh, a big shift that that's happening in our ecosystems that we're now having the 
efforts of the first uh, vintage of startups. Remember, mm -hmm. this is an ecosystem that uh, I was a second fund in 2010. Yep. Uh, so companies were invested in 11, 12, 13, 14. They're now at the point where they can, they can exit. And this mm -hmm. is freeing up a lot of first capital, right? The founders are now becoming angels on, on uh, earlier startups. And they are also coming back and doing for the second time, which increased a lot the speed and the level of um, of success when they when they when they succeed. So um, we're excited about what's coming. So the other point that you have not made, but I'm kind of reading between the lines and drawing my own conclusions based on my experience, is that you must be having a lot of bootstrapped ventures that are going straight into Series A and not doing a seed round? Uh, no, they will typically come in and have already a seed round. Uh, it's just not a norm, normally a seed fund. They will get money from uh, friends and family or from uh, angels. We have um, about 10,000 angels in Brazil that uh, actively write checks. Okay. Uh, uh, and that provide the capital to get Series A. Okay. Very few founders can, can go directly to Series A. Okay. Now, uh, what about sectors? What's, um, do you do B2B and B2C? And, and what, uh, what are your segment preferences? What trends do you like uh, to invest in? As a firm, we are agnostic. Uh, especially because we feel that the Brazilian market is still fairly small. Uh, if we go sector specific, we're probably going to be under diversified uh, or letting in founders that are not up to the to the to the bar, right? Um, so we, we like to keep our mandate as open as open as possible, right? Uh, we've we've done a lot of B2C, we've done a, a lot of B2B. Probably we have the largest SaaS portfolio. Uh, in the country, mm -hmm. um, and, and I particularly like SaaS companies, so uh, that, that's something uh, we're very active in and we understand very well. Um, Sector-wise, um, there are problems that we identify in the market that we know needs to get solved, but uh, what we think, we are proactive in scouting out solutions for them, but pipeline-wise, what we see is that this is very founder-driven, so there was a big, uh, a big wave of uh, fintechs uh, up to a year ago. You could see a lot of companies uh, coming up. Uh, now uh, the the leaders in the market have already been funded and are starting to pull ahead. So we see a cool down on fintech side. A lot of things happening on fintech uh, infrastructure. Um, also a lot of things happening on uh, real estate and property. Uh, in, in Brazil, uh, and health, right? Those are, uh, those are sectors that have a lot of activity, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, not necessarily uh, only, the only things we're going to look at. Uh, we, we are now doing um, deals in uh, the legal system in Brazil, right? How do I do online mediation and arbitration? Uh, mm -hmm. We're doing deals uh, in retail, 
So uh, we are fairly agnostic about it. And as long as the problem is big enough, we'll look at it. Okay. Now, um, you, in the course of your introduction, you talked about two or three unicorns that have come out of your previous funds and so forth. Could you double click down and talk about what they are, what problems have they solved, and, and what kind of, you know, how did you find these companies? How did they find the kind of traction that they did? And why have they been successful? What have you learned from those? Sure. Um, the one I did in my previous fund is called iTube, which is basically Grubhub for Latin America. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, I got to know the company because uh, my brother was one of the founders, so that made life <laughs> easy. No, but, um, uh, but they were in an interesting position. They had a previous business that was uh, food ordering through phone. Uh, which never scaled, and then they put up the site, and all of a sudden, in two months, 25% of the orders are coming from the site. Um, and differently from the U.S., they came up with a very interesting sol tech solutions, right? Uh, in Brazil, normally a restaurant has one, ca one computer, right? And that's the cashier. So if you're sending an order to the, to the computer, so the cashier is getting this, but he's in the middle of actually closing checks and making uh, making the calculations and make sure he receives all the money. So he, you would never get a, a response to that, right? Yeah. Uh, you you send in the order and never show. What they did is they actually hacked a credit card POS and they they changed the system. Very, very interesting, technically, what they did. But what, what they created was a machine that could receive orders inside the kitchen. Mm -hmm. So you would send the restaurant the order and the machine would start beeping in the kitchen and print out the order and the restaurant would accept. Mm -hmm. And that changed the whole game, right? Because now uh, I, I bypassed the, the bottleneck, which was the restaurant. And then the second thing that they did that was fairly interesting, they moved to the mobile much sooner than their peers abroad. And that, um, that gave them a very good leadership in the market. They have now 95% of the food delivery market in Brazil. And mm -hmm. that enabled them to go out and buy uh, their shares in Mexico and then uh, Colombia. And now they basically own uh, food delivery in Latin America. Uh, it's a very cool company. Uh, then the second company uh, is called Jimpass. Jimpass, actually, the founder studied with my brother, so that's a very good class at school. Uh, but um, he started doing um, problem is simple, right? You pay for six months of uh, gyms, and you normally go for three weeks, and then the gym right. takes hold of the remaining five months. And he was like, this is not fair. I'm going to solve that problem. And he started selling day passes for gyms, uh, which was uh, something that wasn't available in Brazil at the time. Uh, fairly quickly, uh, one, of the, one of his clients actually went to the HR department of his company and said, look, you're paying for this uh, gym that's in the building. Uh, I don't want to do it. I want you to pay for this uh, service 
because I want to do the gym close to my house. And all of a sudden, they landed a 7,000 uh, clients contract with one company. And they yeah. said, screw the B2C, let's go to the B2B model. Uh, that company is now in 17 different countries, just raised a $300 million round uh, from SoftBank, and it's just starting operations in the U.S. It's called Gympass. Okay. And then the third one is Rappi. Uh, Rappi uh, resembles a lot what Postmates does. Basically, mm -hmm. order anything on an app. Uh, but differently from the U.S., here you can actually order anything. You can order uh, food, you can order uh, your groceries, you can order somebody to pick up jewelry for you, wh whatever you want, they'll deliver. And uh, that's a company that uh, we did the seed, the Series A was made by Andreessen and Sequoia. Uh, they, and now they just raised a billion dollar round from, uh, from SoftBank. Uh, and if you look at the streets, uh, I can't show you because I would have to turn the camera, but there are like hundreds of uh, delivery guys out in the street wearing orange, which yeah. they're calling. So. But the, in the emerging markets, the delivery services are really taking a very important role because these are very congested uh, cities and people really don't want to go out and do all the running around so it, and labor is very cheap so it seems like these are this is a trend yeah, that is really good I, I think the salary arbitrage plays a very big role in it yeah absolutely so um and talk the cities a little are bit dense, about right? and the cities are dense if you're yeah. in suburban united states you can't make that work right so um talk a little bit about what's in the pipeline, younger companies, these are of course mature companies that have already found their stride. Talk about younger companies. What's exciting in your portfolio? A couple of examples of companies that you think they are really interesting and they're doing something really cool. Sure, um, there is one company that I, a few of them. One is a mid-stage company. I just raised a $50 million round. It's called Olis. What they do is they take small merchants and they put them under one umbrella to sell into large marketplaces, right? So for the marketplace perspective, it's, uh, it's a one store. It's normally the largest store in, the, in all the marketplaces uh, mm -hmm. with a very high uh, level of service. But at the end of the day, they, they hold no inventory. They have today 8,000 merchants that actually fulfill those orders and deliver. And from the merchant's perspective, mm -hmm. I'm simplifying the hassle of having to run the systems on Amazon and then on Target and then on Walmart and having to manage all this complexity of five different systems. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, that what all this solves for them. Um, so that's a company we really like. So the thesis um, is that this market, this particular company is positioned as a power seller in all of these marketplaces with great reviews and as a result they have better SEO and so forth and, and they are consolidating, they're kind of like an intermediary that's consolidating 8,000 merchants. Yeah, and they, and they have the sophistication, right? So they, yeah. they, they run extensive analysis. If I change pricing here, what happens to the sale? And they, they advise the merchants on how to better uh, sell in the marketplaces. 
very cool idea. So, yeah, it's fairly complex. Uh, it's very to run. Complex. It's a complex and complexity is what creates the defensibility, right? Yeah, so that's one we love. Another one is a company called Pipefly. I don't know if you've seen them. But what they did is they take the layer uh, of workflow management out of the ERP. Mm -hmm. So and, and they give it to the business person. So the business person can go in and create their workflows, any process, recruiting, uh, hiring, onboarding, purchasing, whatever you want to create that's a repetitive process, you, you very quickly, it takes less than 15 minutes, you create the workflow in Pipeline and you deploy it and you start running it. And you get all the metrics, you get all the data recorded, um, that's a company, it's a pure SaaS company, it has clients in 192 countries, guys from GE and Uber to the very small startup that doesn't want to create their own ERP. Mm -hmm. um, it, that's a company I really like too. Uh, and then we have less uh, obvious companies, well, less visible. Not, not, uh, and, and when I give you the pitch, you're going to see how obvious it is, right? 80% of all financial transactions in the world still run on a COBOL on a mainframe, huh. right? And financial institutions actually spend $272 billion a year maintaining the, the legacy. So what this company is doing, they are redesigning all the core of a financial transaction on a modern platform. Uh, it's the part that you never see in a transaction. It's the yeah. back, back, back end processing capability. And then and the, the last customers one. Customers are banks or customers are all kinds of financial banks. institutions? Banks? Banks, okay. Uh, anyone could be, right? If you want to create your FinTech, you can use it. Uh, but, but the system is so robust and uh, so flexible that you need a lot of coding power on the other side. And normally yeah. the banks are the ones that are feeling the pinch right now. So uh, we've seen very large banks, 60 million plus clients, starting using the software. So, Drigo, how many startups are operating in Brazil right now? That's a very good question. I got no idea. We hear numbers between five and ten. Uh, we look at two thousand two hundred companies a year. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I would venture that it's way more than five. Uh, unsure if it's a lot more than ten. Okay. And what about Latin America? Uh, the rest of the Latin America is much earlier in the process, right? Um, mm -hmm. I think what we see happening in the Brazilian market now, where we have the whole uh, chain of financing, right, from seed to the $5 billion SoftBank fund, um, actually is a, is a consequence of 2010, 11, 12, where we had three or four larger funds created, right? Mm -hmm. We had Redpoint, we had Monashis, we had Kazakh, each with $170 million uh, to invest, which enables us to create companies at a faster pace. And we haven't seen that happening yet in Latin America. Uh, Argentina basically has no fund. Uh, 
Uh, there are very small funds, right? They're all $20 million funds, uh, which puts them in a position that they are subdiversified, so they can't take the risk, right? And they can't tell the founder to go and grow as much as he can because he doesn't know that there will be an X check. So the guy always grows uh, with, uh, with a feet on the brake, right? Because he needs to be able to break even. And that slows down the company development. Um, in Mexico, the funds are also relatively smaller. Um, and then Colombia has no funds. Everybody's servicing it from abroad. Um, so I guess we are now at a stage where those other markets have enough founders that would justify large funds in it. Uh, it's time somebody goes out and creates a few hundred million dollar funds in Colombia, a few hundred million dollar funds in, uh, in Mexico and Argentina, and then five years down the road, we're gonna see what's happening in Brazil, happening in those markets, but they're much earlier in the process. It's ironical because Argentina produced one of the most successful companies the earliest in the cycle. Yes, yes <laughs> they did. Kind of uh, despite how much we Brazilians don't like to talk about it, yeah, they did. They were very successful very early in the cycle. Yeah. Okay. Well, wonderful. It looks like uh, the Brazilian ecosystem has made a lot of progress. We, we've had um, others from your part of the world from time to time, so it's, it's good to catch up, good to see progress. Uh, we try to keep our finger on the different parts uh, of the world and how the ecosystems are coming along. And it's really wonderful right now how many ecosystems have made how much progress. So I think it's just a matter of time that other parts of Latin America will also catch up. So thank you for sharing yeah, your I perspective. Think people, yeah, go ahead. I, I think people realize that innovation is not going to be um, – when you – know, when, Tech, technology investment and innovation moved away from being tech for tech, right? Up to 2000, it was tech for tech. And that's going to get developed in China, Israel, maybe Germany, and, and, and the Valley. And that's it, right? When we take tech and apply to the real world, our problems, the problems of the developing markets are much larger. And then you create indigenous companies that can really have an impact. And yeah. I think that's the biggest shift that's happened. Well, the shift is also that the entrepreneurial mindset has started to develop in these emerging economies, right? I mean, when, when I lived in India in the uh, 80s, I left India in 89 to come to college in the U.S. I mean, people were not thinking of being entrepreneurs. That was a very rare mindset. And now everybody, I mean, there's like vast numbers of entrepreneurially oriented people in the ecosystem. It's, it's a new rock band. Yeah. Well, when we were kids, the good thing was to have a hot rock band. <laughs> thank you for sharing your perspective. Uh, we'll keep in no, touch. No, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, okay. guys. It's a pity I won't get to see your pitch. 